Hey, Sweat Elite Podcast listeners, Matt here, your host. Thanks for tuning into this Sweat Elite Podcast episode being recorded from Boulder, Colorado, USA, the home and training base of many elite distance runners, as well as cyclists and triathletes, including Team Tin Man Elite, who I was very lucky to be invited to a few of their training sessions over the last few weeks and have recorded a few podcast episodes with members from their team that will be published in the next few weeks. So do stay tuned to the Sweat Elite podcast. If you hit subscribe, you'll be notified when those podcast episodes are published. But this episode is a recorded interview that was conducted a couple of weeks ago with Olympic marathon champion from 1972, Frank Shorter. Frank is known by many to be the father of the modern-day running boom. As already mentioned, he was the Olympic champion for the marathon in 1972. He won silver in the marathon in the Olympic Games after that in 1976. He was also the USA cross-country champion on four occasions, the US 10,000-meter champion on six occasions, and he also won the Fukuoka Marathon four times. So he has a stunning resume I was very lucky to be invited to Frank's house to conduct this interview. We spoke about all things running. I mean, he shared plenty of information about his training back in the day, which was very polarized. Frank was a big fan of hard interval training twice per week, and more or less the rest of the running was at a very easy conversational pace, which Frank very rarely planned in terms of the duration and distance that he would run at, run for, which we talk a bit about in this podcast episode as well. Um, Frank claims that he trained for the 5k for most of his career, as in most of the training done in those interval training sessions was done at around his 5k pace. And he also claims to have very rarely run over about 65 seconds or 105 per lap in training. So most of his repetitions that were tended to be either 400 meter, 800 meter or 1200 meter repeats, occasionally mile repeats were very rarely done at any time slower than 65 per lap. Frank speaks a bit about sort of why this is, and of course, he gives some example training sessions as well, but we talk about training throughout this podcast episode extensively. Um, Frank shares plenty of stories about racing, including racing Steve Prefontaine over three miles, and some of the stories from the Olympic Games that he obviously won gold and silver medals in the marathon during that time. So I really enjoyed this recording with Frank Shorter. Um, again, very appreciative of Frank for having me around to his house to um, share all the stories that he did on this podcast episode. And I'm sure that all listeners will really enjoy this one. So before I transition over to the audio recording with Frank from a couple of weeks back, uh, a huge thank you to the Sweat Elite subscribers once again, who keep the content coming at Sweat Elite. Um, subscribers access all the articles on the Sweat Elite website. You can find out more about that at the link in the show notes. And if the link in your show notes or in your podcast player doesn't work, you can just check out the Sweat Elite website and go from there. If you've enjoyed Sweat Elite podcast episodes, we would really appreciate your rating on your podcast player. And thank you to those that have rated the Sweat Elite podcast, especially those that have rated it five stars. That's about enough from me in this intro. I hope you enjoy this Sweat Elite podcast episode with Frank Shorter. All right, thanks for tuning in to another Sweat Elite podcast episode. I'm sitting in the house of Frank Shorter in Boulder, Colorado, who is known by many to be the father of the modern, modern day running boom, 1972 Olympic champion in the marathon, 1976 Olympic silver medal in the marathon, US cross-country champ four times, four-time Fukuoka marathon champion, 
and also you were chairman of the USA Anti-Doping Agency between 2000 and 2003. So thanks so much for joining. Yep. And since, you know, when I was looking back, the I was actually six-time national 10,000-meter champion. Six-time national. Yeah, I just so sorry I missed that I thought, out. That's I a huge... It, I thought it was five. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you forgot about uh, one. But one was six-mile. <laughs> and, awesome achievement. Well, yeah, I apologize yeah, for leaving yeah, that no, out. That's no, a, uh... Because that's where I started out. And I think that's why it's relevant to this conversation is Absolutely. that that was where I really had my jumping off point was in the 10,000 meter race Yeah, sure. at the end of my college. So that's where I was and um, uh, that we'll get into that in the training. But um, the training I did for 10,000 meters was actually more geared towards a 5,000 meter runner. Sure. And so just to sort of give the introduction on what I think we're trying to achieve here is that I started out in college as a 5,000 meter runner trained that way and in essence continued to train that way and trained that way all the way through the Olympic marathon. Mm. So I hope what emerges from our talk is that um, everyone has their own way of doing it and mine was to continue to run as if I were going to race 5,000 meters. Yeah, I have read that at a number of different sources that you did a lot of training at around 5K pace, which for oh, you, yeah. I guess, was very S close to... 65 seconds. 65 seconds per I never ran a repeat. roughly mile pace. I never ran slower than 65 second pace. You told me that... any interval. You told me that last week when we met at Rally Sport and Fitness Club in the middle of Boulder, and I was very curious to learn more about what you, I, I almost didn't believe it at the start because I thought you didn't do any intervals of 2K or 3K or two miles. Um, so, I mean, that prompted me to ask you to come on the podcast. So I'm so appreciative of you doing so. Um, but let's keep going on what okay, you were just talking ahead. about. Yeah. So, I mean, so you basically focused your entire career on training as a 5K runner, but I guess you extended the long runs out when you were training right. more specifically for the marathon. Right. It, it, I uh, got to where, um, I but again, I extended them out to be a better 10,000-meter runner. Right. I moved to Florida to train in 1970, and at the time, the best distance runner in the U.S. was a fellow named Jack Batchelor, uh, who happened to be there because he was an entomology Ph.D. Uh, candidate, and what better place to study butterflies than <laughs> Florida? <laughs> and, and so I went down there to train with him, and he would run 20 miles every Sunday. And uh, so I started to do it. Um, and it was so funny when I went down to train with him. He would also go to the track and run intervals. Not as actually as fast as I did, um, but almost. Right. And, and so I, I learned there that it, it seemed to be um, the right thing, um, the right thing to do. And, and so... Once I got up to 20 miles, I just did that every Sunday. And as an aside, and, and you know, I would at this point tell people who are listening that what, what I always found worked for me since I was self-coached, since I was a junior in college, university, um, that I looked for mentors. Hmm. And they didn't even have to know that they were my mentors. I looked for people with whom, to, and they happened to be training partners. Hmm. And so I went out and ran with Jack, and Jack would run very slowly on Sunday and eventually got to the point where I didn't want to run as slowly as he did, so sometimes I wouldn't run with him. How slowly are we talking? We didn't time it. 
Okay. It was just jogging. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But that was also, the that for me in my own particular way was also very good uh, for me individually because since I went so hard when I was going hard, this in a way, looking back, would ensure that on my easy days, I would not be going too hard so that it would have an effect on my next hard day. Mm -hmm. And and so that's what I learned from Jack. And, and one of my mottos starting out in 1970 was, never go so hard on your hard, uh, uh, easy day that it interferes with the next hard day. Sure. And for us, it was just intuitive. Yeah. We, we, we kind of um, did it on our own. And um, so hard, easy for us meant hard is very hard and easy was very easy. Now, when you say hard is very hard, are you talking going to the to the well 100% in your training sessions on the track? Or? Um, I would do two interval sessions a week, um, which I think, quite honestly, is all you can do if you're not on drugs. Yeah. And um, because that was just when people were starting to find out about steroids and realizing that, you know, at first... You wouldn't believe it, but back in 1970, people said, oh, distance runners don't take steroids. They, they don't want to get big. And no one was willing to acknowledge that it was all about the recovery. Yeah. So the, the steroids were helping your recovery. They weren't, they weren't helping build your muscle mass. And so uh, <laughs> we, um, and, and we knew. Uh, we knew what was going on. So, but we would recover uh, two times a week. And if I didn't race on the weekend, I would actually go to the track and run um, in and out 220s or 200 meters. Mm -hmm. And as this is an, as an additional training session. As an additional, yeah, yeah. But it, I would run twice a day except Sunday. And on Saturday, if I weren't racing, I would go to the track and run 28, 27 second 200s. Right. How many of them? Uh, 16. 16. Okay. With, but then the jog and the jog was very fast. Okay. In between. Okay. So you were just doing a float between so, the two. Yeah, I, of, I was two hundred yeah. meters in between each one, or yeah, yeah, yeah in and out. That's so what two, we meant by in and, in and out. out. Okay. And and so if you think about it, it, it was all about leg turnover, yep. leg right? And and our theory, my theory, was always when I rationalized, I guess, the five thousand meter pace. I said the larger the difference you can have between your training, fast training pace and your race pace, the bigger that difference, the better, mm -hmm. because the more relaxed you can be at race pace. Because mm -hmm. in a, in a, you've slowed down more. Yes. And, and so it's all the more comfortable. And, and again, just to, um, and so, and then on the other part of the, sort of the overall view of, of the interval training um, was that once I did get to the point to where um, I felt I was going faster <laughs> enough than 5k race pace, then that's when I started to shorten the recovery. Okay. So, so there was no point to you in actually speeding up the repetitions faster than 5k pace. Instead, you would shorten the recovery. Well, once, say once, for example, once I got... Some example sessions would be really good to hear. Yeah, yeah. six times 800, uh -huh. I would start out at about 208 and finish at 2 flat. Okay. That's... And, <laughs> and what sort of recovery between them? Uh, would you start well, with when at, you were building at, up? At sea level, 
Initially, it was 400 meters, then it worked down to 200 meters. And at altitude, um, once it got above 5,000 feet, it would be um, um, 400 meters. But then what I did, and I did this with repeat 400s as well, once I got to where indoors up here I could run uh, 12 400s at about 61 second pace average, going under 60 for the last ones, and I would start out uh, running 400 meters in between and 200 meters at sea level. When I got to that point, then I started to shorten the interval, the jog, between the first four, say. Sure. And then eventually that would be, and up here, I got to the point where I could jog 200 meters at altitude, an average 61 um, 61 seconds for 12 400s. Right. And and with a fast recovery. So you see, I, I, I think I had this sense of range. Mm. And, and the goal was to, and, and I found myself, once I got to a certain point in speed, then, then the recovery became important. Sure. And the way I viewed it is when you do it that way, it's as if you have a many-sided object, and the faster your recovery, the more that many-sided object grows in number of sides and gets almost to be a circle. Sure. Where you're not recovering any. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's so how how close can you get to the full circle? You can never get there, but it's this idea of okay, I know I don't have to to run much faster. Mm. But the, then the point becomes I believe what that does that speeds up your rate of recovery at race pace where everyone surges or everyone goes out too fast and everyone backs off in the all on the edge of being anaerobic and in uh, their anaerobic thresholds, and then they back off. And I believe that kind of training enables you to recover more quickly. Sure. Makes sense. Yeah. You're, you're, you're learning, you're, you're making that difference between <laughs> recovery time and race pace yeah. sort of balance out. And I hope I'm explaining it yeah, yeah. well. No, I understand. Then, then the other part of it, once I got to the certain point where I started to talk to other people about this, and, and how this fit in with training overall. Um, I think when I, I started out in the, in the 70s and even into the 80s, uh, we ran a lot of mileage in a week. But what when we went back to it, what we realized, it took me almost a year down in Florida to get to the point where I could average 20 miles a day of running. Mm-hmm. I didn't just start out and say, well, I'm going to run 20 miles a day. And I think it was because, not because running the mileage itself has some magic effect, but I believe that the fitter you are anaerobically, the more you need to jog or run slowly between those workouts to recover. And that's why your mileage increases. Your mileage doesn't increase because you just decide to increase it. <clears throat> because when we were increasing our mileage like that, it was just, and you know, we all, even now, I have this, what I call exercise quotient, the amount of exercise I need to do in a day, and I go, okay, that's enough. And that quotient goes up 
as you get fitter and fitter mm -hmm. in your anaerobic training. And I believe that's the reason. Your, your, your body instinctively is saying, I need this. And if, again, if you think about it physiologically, when you're jogging, you have muscle contraction and venous pressure. And so you're increasing the blood flow back. Yep. And so, you know, you're getting rid of all that waste and all that other stuff. And that's the reason to do it. It's to recover. It's not, okay. Not to so, build any more endurance necessarily. No, yeah. no, because the endurance comes from the... Uh, the track sessions. I'm going to quote, I'm going to basically summarize what you just said over the last five minutes in a quote that you, uh, from you in a, in another podcast I listened to while preparing for this, I allowed my increased total mileage per week to be dictated by my own personal feeling for what I call my energy quota. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, just shortly after that, you, you said it, similarly, when I get in better and be better and better shape on the track running intervals, the amount of running I would run easy would increase on its own. And right. that sounded like it was just intuitive to you. Yeah. It, you didn't plan that nope. beforehand. Nope. It's almost like you decided when you were tying your shoes up how long you would go or maybe even no, on no, the run. No, no, you just went out there. And, and so, and, and once it got up to about 20 miles, then in a way I went back to working on the speed. Sure. Um, and, and, and the other thing, just parenthetically, I never ran a long run more than 20 miles. Yeah, for I, marathon I, I, I really, that was one of the questions I had here. And I... When I was researching, I didn't see anything longer than that in nope, any logs ever, or any mentions, ever. and I found that interesting. I would train with Kenny Moore, and we were training for the 76 uh, Olympic team, and I'd go out to Oregon, and we'd go out for our Sunday run, and his wife would go along in the Volkswagen and at the and with water for and stuff, and we'd get to 20 miles, and I'd get in the car, and Kenny would go run more, <laughs> you know, and never occurred to me that, oh, he's doing more than I am. You didn't even think twice about didn't it. Didn't even think twice. Yeah. It, it was, okay, this is, this, is what, this is what works for me. My own personal theory on it, and it's based on my first marathon with Kenny in 1971. He talked talk me into uh, running the Pan American Marathon Trials in 1971 because it was a month before the track trials. And if he felt we could both qualify, which we did, and in that race, he finished first and I finished second. In that race, and there's a quote, if you've, you've looked, it's out there and it was true because Kenny would write for Sports Illustrated about these races. At 22 miles in that race, I turned to him and I said, why couldn't Fidipides have died here? <laughs> 22 miles, and guess what turns out to be physiologically the wall for... Right lots and that. lots of people. Yeah. And what I experimented when I started to just try to see if I could go a little bit more, I think maybe once or twice, and I can't even remember, maybe I ran a little more than 20 miles. But what I found for me personally, and believe it or not, this uh, ties in years later with Jack Daniels, who was the first research physiologist in American running mm -hmm. at the and and people still read his books and and the theory is still there yeah okay so um so i i if i got to 20 miles you see i also ran 20 miles on sunday and then on monday i did my hardest interval workout of the week mm. okay that's interesting how hard was the 20 miles uh again it was what sort of effort easy. was that it, it was, was easy, easy. 
Okay, so and, you wouldn't make those long runs anywhere near marathon pace? I, the way I, I, I call it, it was 20 miles or two hours, whichever comes first. Sure. Yep. So it would be 20 miles, and it would take a little bit less, and it would average somewhere between an hour and 50 and an hour and 55 minutes. Okay. Around 20 miles. Oh, that's okay. That's pretty quick. Well, yeah. It, I mean, it's it's not close to the marathon pace, but it's no, it's, it's uh, no, yeah, it's not jogging. Um, and and so, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and if I went beyond the once or twice, maybe I tried going beyond 20 miles. I was too tired on Monday. Right. I'm curious and even then, what the reasoning. Years later, yeah. Guess what Jack Daniels' theory ultimately turns out to be. If you you know uh, Google Jack Daniels and and you look, he is the first I think to come up. And you can research this. It's not hard easy. You don't go hard one day easy the next. Hard one day easy the next. His weekly pattern was hard hard easy easy hard easy easy. Right. And essentially, that's what I was doing intuitively. By doing the Sunday hard Monday. Hard Sunday, hard Monday, easy, easy, hardest intervals. The faster, see, the, the Monday would be slower, the slowest I would run for the intervals, but it was still a 5K race pace. Right. And then usually um, Thursday would be 800s or 400s. Okay. And what would Mondays be on the track it, normally? It might be, well, it, at sea level, it might be two or three interval miles. Okay. But they had to be 420. Just two or three of them? Yeah. Okay. And then whatever else. Usually it might be one or two, and then I would do uh, three quarters, 1200s. Yep. Okay. But Maintaining. 64, 65 second lap pace. Yeah. Yeah. And then Thursday would be 800 or 400. Sure. Usually. It sounded like that was the and hardest. So, but sometimes on Thursday I would do something like run a, you know, run a 1200 to start. Yeah. Just to, but again, that all, it wasn't really to warm up. Yeah. It, but it was. To get the lactate going. But again, going. again, and, and because I think what that does, it varies, it, it makes you really think more during the recovery jog. Yeah. Because you've run sort of a different distance. Yeah. And so you're sensing your recovery differently. Mm -hmm. In a way, if you think about it, it's kind of like what surging is. You know, surging is a very, you know, arbitrary kind of. Um, not structured, unstructured, sort of, um, and and so again, just to, um, uh, and I, I did that. I started in 1970, and I probably was able to do it for at least seven years hmm. that way. And I also believe. Um, that because I was running less distance in the hard intervals, orthopedically, it was better. Sure. And um, I think it helped um, forestalling what, what um, once I got it, I came to call the big kahuna, the first big injury. And... Um, and and I think it put it off because that didn't occur till February of '76. Okay. And actually, the story there is I was running 800 repeats on the indoor track in Boulder here, 200 meter flat, and I could do that. I I, I was I was good. I don't know. Just parenthetically, I mean, I I held the American record indoors for two months. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. And and so I I liked running <laughs> indoors and on on the 
fifth of eight repeats, I was going around the far turn and something went pop in my left ankle. This and, is the year of the and, Montreal, Montreal Olympics. Yep. Yeah. And so... It's been six months roughly before that. Uh, yep. And what happened there was um, um, I knew um, something was wrong. And, you know, back then... You it, well even now you know when you have a stress fracture it doesn't show till it starts to heal, mm. and now with C you know they didn't have CAT scans and stuff like that so, and I knew since it was February, it didn't matter, because if I took any time off that was it. Sure. So if I took the six weeks off in February, um, to April, and then the marathon trial was in June. Wouldn't work. No. So I just kept training. And what happened was um, my ankle would swell up and I, I would get a cyst the size of a ping pong ball in the inside of my um, ankle at the navicular point. It turned out the navicular joint was fractured. And then, um, and so I ran the Olympic trials and, you know, I qualified and then I ran the 10,000 meters and qualified. But I decided not to run the 10 thousand in the Mer in the Olympics in Montreal because they still at that time had a trial and a final. Right. And I wasn't gonna risk the ankle not holding up. For the three races. For the three races. And so eventually it turned out yeah it was fractured. Okay. But you and held off almost six months to to address that, is that right? Oh Between... and, and then I ran for almost a year after with it. Wow. And then I think finally what happened was is that in medical terms the posterior tibial tendon finally pulled part of the fractured bone out. And that was when it all <laughs> came crashing down. <laughs> it came crashing down. Yeah. But that was my big injury. Right. But I but I think um um being able um to run fast and I think maybe that's why I could uh, even survive after that initial fracture because I wasn't again putting as much I was putting a lot of pressure on it but at least it was almost the least amount you could do mm. Mm. and um, and and so it lasted so you know that's that was my theory and then the other part is I trained that way all year round yeah I and that. that's why I moved to Boulder because remember here I got my injury in February mm. running repeat 800s on an indoor track yeah okay I wasn't taking the winter off. No. And and that's just what I did. I would I would slow down a little bit sometimes in the fall. But I ran the cross country championships um, you know, four times. Um training that way. Yeah. And very often, ironically, it turned out and I think three times three or four. No, three times, I would run the cross-country championships, get on a plane, go to Fukuoka, and run Fukuoka the next weekend. <laughs> <laughs> last, so uh, I won the, last hard workout before yeah, I ran, the... Yeah, yeah, I ran... How long were those cross-country races? 10,000. I should know, 10K, yeah. 10K. Okay. And, and so... Did you do much practice for that, more specifically cross-country, or was it just sticking no, to I the two-track sessions? I just liked it. Yeah, you're obviously very good at it, to win the national champs four times. But that also had the fact that when I was training, I was in New Mexico, and I was running up and down between seven, nine, and 10,000 feet in the mountains. In the, on the easy days? 
Or, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, and the problem with the twenty mile runs as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, that's essentially. Yeah, and and around here. Yeah, um, you can certainly and, do some hilly runs around and, here. And also, I would um, every once in a while, and it was instinctive. About once a year, I would take about two weeks and run hill repeats instead of track. Okay. And I ran about the same number of repetitions of either a quarter or 800 meters. And I would run them, you know, at, uh, um, at a perceived effort and, and then, you know, jog down. But to me, if you think about it, I viewed it as a rest. I was kind of backing off. Hmm. Because just as with the long runs not worrying about it, I would do the hill repeats, and as long as I felt I was going hard enough to qualify it as a hard day, that was okay. And I think that was, again, instinctively saying, I need to get away from the track for a while. Mm -hmm. The other part the other part that I haven't mentioned is, and I know I'm trying to anticipate questions, is you might say, well, well what about, um, um, what do I want to say, tempo runs? Yeah, actually, a German friend of mine who um, wanted to ask you a couple of questions. You're his hero, by the way. He said that you're still very influential in Germany. He wanted to know about threshold runs. Did you do them? And, and he also wanted to know about peaking because you seem to be a master of being able to peak at exactly the right time year after year. So let's go with uh, with those two topics. Okay, that's, that's good. The, and it turned out, again, it, it's always in retrospect in a way because it yeah. was just part of my program, just like the hill repeats was sort of my season off. Yeah. And again, to just finish that story, so, yeah. I did that one time in 1974, and it makes you realize that <laughs> probably could have done better because I was, it was my last quarter in law school in Florida, and I was going to get in a car and drive to um, here and then get on a plane and go to Eugene and run with Steve Prefontaine in an effort we were going to try to break the American record for three months, which we did. Mm. So I ran this two weeks of hill repeats, got in the car, drove to Boulder, got on a plane, went to Eugene, and Steve and I ran 12.51.8 and 12.51.9 <laughs> for, for three miles. So he, he, we both ran faster and he broke the record. And, and it makes you realize that doing those hill repeats certainly didn't hurt. No. And, 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 and maybe I should have done it more. Yeah. Well, uh, but but you know, and and the side story there is in the history of track and field in the U.S. Steve pre-invited me out there because he was organizing a track meet that didn't have our federation sanction, and technically we were all going to be illegal. But he had the Finnish national team who came. Viren was supposed to be there, pulled out, and he called me up <laughs> after I had driven out here. And because that wasn't the plan to go out there, and I and I just finished a Tuesday interval workout on the track. I'd gone back to the intervals. He called me up, and he said, "Hey, how would you come out and run a this three mile on Friday?" <laughs> just three three days notice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and my answer to him was, "Why you need somebody to beat because Viren's dropped out?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, need, exactly. <laughs> I need I need somebody," and and so I went out. But the point being. For whatever reason, my way of training, I, I was always ready to run, mm -hmm. to run hard. Now, the tempo runs, it would be maybe once a month. I didn't do it that often. I would have a Friday run. It was going to be a slow run. I had a normal routine on 
from my house up on the hill where I would start out on this normal run that usually turned out to be about 10 miles. And I'd start running up the hill and then it was a, a series of going up a street, descending a little bit because it was on a hill and running down and then running up. And, and it was sort of part of my warm up. So I, and I could sort of sense how I was feeling that day. Okay. And once I got about five minutes into that run, on certain days, I, I could sense I feel really good. Okay. And I would have a course that on that day I would run, and it was different from the 10-mile course, and the first time I did it, it ended up, and I would circle the campus at CU at the end of the run, and after 40 minutes, so the 35 minutes, I would see where I was. Mm -hmm. And so over time, on that tempo run, and I would run it at what I perceived to be 10K race pace. Okay. And, and obviously it wasn't, but it was my way of being able to chart improvement. Sure. Rather than with a watch. Well, you were using a watch, but what you were doing is as long as I started that tempo run at that same spot and ran the same course and saw where I finished. Yeah. And that that was and I found that's what really towards the end gets you going. Yeah. For sure. Because I wouldn't keep track of where I was at certain points. No. I would, be... I would sort of vaguely remember. Yeah. And then I would see where I ended up. Okay. And so that's how I did it. So that, that was... And did you say that was roughly 30 minutes? Did, was uh, that you, did 35. I, 35. I, I think, you started I think the five. first time the, the arbitrary... And, and actually, it may have been a little further because I think what, what I would always do would, would have the tempo run be 40 minutes. Okay. And so that's where I would stop it. So if I were four or five minutes into it yeah. and then took off, then... Okay. And this, so this was about once a month and you did yeah, a track yeah, session. And I, never, and I never really worried about how often it was. Yeah. It was and it more like, like you decided on the day to do it. Oh yeah. Or on like, the warm up. On the warm up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and because, um, and again, don't ask me why. Mm, it worked. Yeah. And it would, it, it, it would happen on a day when I wasn't racing the next day. Sure. And then I would go to the track and run 200s. After the. The next day. The next day. Okay. Of course, that's the Saturday when you didn't have a race. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, the peaking. Um, Could be a tough one to answer. No. You may, it's no, almost like an it, intuitive thing again. You would, I would back off a little bit. Okay. But it was almost as if I was backing off um, just enough so that I could convince myself I was backing off. I don't know if that makes any sense, <laughs> but to, to give you an example in, in my Olympic races, um, um, I held down and, and before, um, Olympic trials and before Fukuoka, and those were the only races. Okay. Olympic trials, Olympics, Fukuoka, sometimes track races, national races. I didn't worry about it that much. It was only really for cross country and and marathon, and a little bit, you know, for track races. But it 
again, if I were running and getting ready for an important track race, it instead of, you know, 12 400s, I might do 10. You know, it would, I would just scale down the workout enough to know that thing, different things were going on. Yeah, sure. And, um, the other thing that, that, um, my recovery has always been very good. Okay. I could always race on consecutive days. Sure. I did a lot of racing on consecutive days. What just you, an what, example what you bring that down to? What? Do, you, do you think that was more of a natural ability? Or I, do you think, think it was... I think it's because my first workout of the day very often would start at 10 or 11, and my afternoon workout would start at 3. Yeah, okay. You were teaching your body to have to deal with at least maybe two and a half, three hours in between the right. sessions. Right. Yeah, okay. But didn't for like whatever the, reason, didn't like the but I, I could do it in college. I could do it in high school, in, in prep school. Yeah. I would, okay. in, when I first started out, when I was 16 years old, I'd run the mile at the beginning of the meet and the three mile, or two mile at the end of the meet. Mm. In college, I ran the mile and the two mile in the same track meet. Um, my first national track championship, my senior year, I won the six mile and was second in the three mile the next day. It, um, one, one time in... In 1977, I won the Chicago Distance Classic 20K and flew to Atlanta and won Peachtree the next day. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I beat Viren and, and Rogers and Don Cardong and, yeah. and oh, who, who are the others? Oh, the, the Tennessee guys. Um, Ed Letty and... Uh, anyway, so, but... So I think, I don't know why I think that also gave me an ability to not have to back off too much. Before my two Olympic races, I held my mileage down to 75 miles the week before each. Okay. That's, a, that's about a four, almost a 40% drop yeah. off to your usual. But that's still 75 miles. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. Now here, here we get to the intuitive part of it. And it's something that started... Um, and Steve Prefontaine and I, and it's funny how Bauer, not funny, I don't think it's a coincidence that Bowerman and Dellinger, who were co coaching Prefontaine, uh, Steve and I and, and Kenny Moore got on our, well, not Kenny's, but my and Steve's first national track team. He was a senior in high school. I was senior in college. And we all went to Europe together because the only way you could get to Europe would to be on an American team because we found out later they were getting all our appearances. And they wouldn't give us what was called a travel permit, which would certify your amateur status for the meets in Europe. So the only way to get there was to be on one of these teams. And we basically roomed together and trained together. And we found out that um, Steve and I both, we both had a workout. And it was just a, a, a step-down workout. And it would be done if the race were on Saturday, it would be on the Tuesday before and it was a mile, um, three quarters, um, two times 800 and two times 400. Mm -hmm. No, it was a mile. Yeah. Yeah. And we would run it hard, much faster, you know, 5k pacer faster and double our recovery from what we would normally do. Okay. 
And it just turned out we both did that. And we happened to do it the first time we got on a track together with the train, the first time we got into Europe. And we ran that workout. Yeah. So there was something about it. And I think as I look back on it, what what it did, it showed you you were fast. And it showed you you were ready. Showed you you were fit enough. You can run that fast. Because you didn't have to worry about it for Saturday because you just did it. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty to yourself. And, but the recovery was so good, you didn't really tear yourself down as much. Yeah. So it was all about maintaining that speed. Fast forward to the other week when I'm talking to all the Americans who have qualified for the Olympic trials this year. And my wife has the same... Um, um, she had the same theory with all her triathletes. So I don't think, you know, these things aren't coincidence, you know, in any sport. And it's the one thing you can still work on right up until the race is speed, mm-hmm. turnover. Yep. And all you do is just make it more and more recovery and less and less tear down and simple exhaustion. And But you can maintain a lot of speed. Yeah. And then on the Thursday, two days before the race, I would go, and instead of the 16 um, 200s, I'd go, I'd go run 12 200s, and I ran fast. How fast? Well, my best ever was once before a race in um, um, Innsbruck, where I ran 12, and you got to remember, I'm a distance runner. <laughs> I ran 12, I ran my last one in uh, 25.9. <laughs> 800 pace. <laughs> and, but you did 144, 800 pace. What? 144, 800 pace. Before but yeah. a marathon. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Would that be something? So that session, that, that 12 times, uh, or how, roughly 12 times 200. And a you very slow 200. I would slow down the 200. The recovery. I would still go 200, but I would really go slowly. It just wasn't in and out. Yeah, okay. It wasn't in and out. It was just to, again. Yeah. Keep my legs going. Usually it would be somewhere in the high 26s or maybe 27 flat. It's impressive for a would be the last, to run 25 would be the last at the end one. of the session. Well, and then... <laughs> um, was that a common workout? Well, what I was about to ask is, was that, was that a common workout for you before? A, a, a big marathon, race. A big, big, so I only yeah. did it two or three times a year. Okay. Two days before. Yeah. Yeah. I give myself two days recovery. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> for me, it was... Since I knew I'd run really hard, it really made me go easy the next day and the next day. I didn't have to worry about yeah, because you know you're ready. Mm. And so the hardest part for me was backing off and yeah. running less. Yeah. But I would always go back on those two workouts and say, all you can do now is rest. Mm. But I also believe that I was one of those people and everyone should find out just how much they need to do even though they backed off or how much can you back off and still maintain sort of your mental stability and let's, there's no way to describe it, your alimentary functions, Mm -hmm. everything else that's going on with you, you know, your diet, your, you know, everything else. Yeah. So that your body is not reacting to it. But I think if you do it right, then your body is also sensing that you're kind of, you're coming up on something. Yeah, <laughs> it knows something's coming. You know something's coming. Yeah, 
And so it's, it, it's sort of generating a certain anticipation and a certain excitement. But, um, um, you know, that, that was pretty much it. And I think that's a, a good point. If it's okay to talk about, you know, then the confidence uh, going in. Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge thing. Um, and, you know, I, I always knew I was ready. But I also, even again, I think I knew instinctively um, that your biorhythms don't always link up sure. um, with the particular day on which you're trying to do your best. And, um, and so I always approach the, the way I would approach that, um, mentally, um, was to say, well, I really can't do anything about that. Uh, but one way I used to get ready for it, and this is good. I never blew off a hard interval workout. I never woke up and said, oh, I can't do that today. I'm okay. not doing that today. Did and you have some I, days that you woke up and you felt, oh, this is going to be tough today because I feel tired? Or was it just that you knew yeah, how to recover and, so No, well? you say, yeah, I, I'm not feeling that good. But I always did it. And I also believe, again, it was the number of intervals I did. Mm. Because mentally, if you wake up and you say, oh, shit, I have to run five interval miles today. <laughs> that's different from waking up and saying hey, six eight hundreds right get it done yeah and i think what you then discover if you do that is that sometimes you do work through that mm -hmm. and in my two olympic marathons i woke up in munich and i felt great. I knew I was having a good day. Mm. And the gun went off in that race and I took 10 steps and I said, it's on. <laughs> this is a good day. I woke up in Montreal. I put my feet, I get goosebumps. Like I sat on the side of the bed, put my feet on the floor. I said, oh shit, why today? And it, I knew mm. I was not feeling good. Why do you think that was? I think it's circadian rhythms. Okay. I, I, you know, there, there are some things you can't control, mm. but I taught myself through my training, I was still going to do it. Didn't and it turned that. out it was, I, I, I ran well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, you, and you play so, second to someone that later on was, uh, yeah. And, <laughs> and so it, it, it was okay. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I think I still ran Ran my second fastest marathon ever on that day. Hmm. Um, in the was it raining? Oh yeah, rain. And whole you way. really didn't oh, like I hate to run in the rain. I hate the yeah. rain. But again, here's here's the story. I'm focused. Is that I look? I've got you know tapes of the the race, and it's just it's just raining. I don't remember the rain. Yeah, I listened I to don't you on another podcast talking about that. Nope. Excellent. Can because, you explain that? Or yeah, it's you, just yeah. you're there. You were just so focused on you're you're yeah. there. Yeah, and and um, you know, it's the old focus again. The instinct, I think, 
for me, which was you focus on that over which you have control. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have right. any control over the rain. Right. And and the other thing is, when I the the one instant that I may have thought about it, I said to myself, everybody else is running this. Mm. No one really individually <laughs> no. disadvantaged you. Yeah. And 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 so yeah, some people are hot weather runners, some people are cold weather runners, but I'm not sure there are people that are pigs and crap in the rain. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Perfect segue into talking about surging in races because you were the master of putting huge gaps into groups. 1972 Olympics, the Olympic Games that you won about a third of the way through the marathon, you put a Nine good... Nine miles. I ran 433. 90 miles. Yep. You dropped a 433 mile, which for people working in kilometers is about a 240 something. So well quicker than the average pace of the run. And you and prepared then, for doing that sort of stuff in training oh, yeah. with some 800 repeats, if I got this correctly, by doing a 200 and about 35, and then you would try and do close to a 60-second 400 in the and middle of it, and then, and a, then a 235. Yeah, and that was to prepare for that exact scenario. Oh, is yeah. that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. It was to slow down, and, and, and the point was is to everyone's going to go, and you want to be the one who slows down least. Yeah. Um, and and rec can recover the most quickly. Yeah. That, I mean that more than than uh, slows down the least, but and I was always a front runner. I could yeah I could do that. I was thinking about the interview, you know, and and again those races where I just uh, found out in 1971 was it 70 or 71? I think it was 71. The U.S. Russian um, track meet. It was the first time I was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. It was after the race. I won the I won the 10,000. And I think it was 71. And I went out and it, it, again, it was kind of wet and the track, never forget, it was 400 meters of bad road. It was in Leningrad and the Russians had literally put down a track that was asphalt. <laughs> <laughs> it was. And, and so we all wore pin spikes. You had to wear indoor pin spikes. Right. That's that's all we could wear, and even then, at the end of the race, I actually wore out the outside of my through the through the plastic yeah. on my shoe. Right. Interesting. <laughs> but anyway, I first international, you know, ten k of of um, that nature, and I went out in thirteen fifty five for the first five k. And at that time, it was the only time anyone had gone out under 14 minutes in a 10K other than Ron Clark when he set his world record. Mm -hmm. Hadn't been done before. And I just mm -hmm. got there and I said, okay, here we go. And, <laughs> and, and just cruised to the finish. Yeah. And, and so I learned, and I also learned in cross country, and I had done that in cross country in the national championships as well. I just, I could go out hard. And again, I think it was that kind of interval training that I did uh, to, I, to recover. Yeah. Um, and it, it wasn't about the speed. It was about the ability to recover more quickly. Sure. And, and so I knew that. And I knew that when I backed off to race pace. And then my strategy was always, it was, it was worth doing uh, because... There was always a point in the race, and I'll never forget my point in the Munich Marathon was 
right in the, the English garden, went over a bridge with at 20 mile point and six miles to go. And one of the Florida coaches um, uh, was actually on the bridge. He didn't even know he was in town. His name was Roy Benson, who was one of the first people in Polar. Mm. He was one of the instigators of the Polar monitor movement years later. He was there on a bicycle on this bridge, and he told me what my lead was. And at that point, my lead was about 90 seconds. Mm. And so if you've got that kind of lead, you then immediately do the arithmetic. Mm. Six miles to go, 15 seconds a mile. <laughs> yeah. So, you work, so you if I can if I can run five minute pace, they've got to run four forty five, mm. which is well faster than they're currently running. Well, yeah, a bit faster than they're currently running. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's fifteen. No, at that point, everyone's over a five minute pace. Yeah, true. Yeah. So you know, you start doing that, mm. and then you can you you can get that reinforcement from that lead. You can know. But you actually extended the lead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but I think I yeah. think it was because you could be more relaxed. Yeah. And, and so, um, yeah. Um, but this is fun for me to kind of talk about this because, uh, again, I like being an example for people who maybe are more inclined to coach themselves. Yes, you're a big advocate of that. And you did that from, as you mentioned at the start, basically from your, sec- your third year of uh, university. university, junior yeah. year. Yeah. Although you had the coach there, you were more so creating your own workouts at that point. Right, and he, but he he was enough of a student of the sport to know what Bowerman was doing, mm. to know what um, um, Jumbo Elliott was doing at Villanova uh-huh. with his guys, what Peyton Jordan was doing at Stanford with his guys. They were early advocates of interval training, just to go into history for people here. For sure. Interval training started with the Finns, with Pazel and Nermi in the 30s. It went to Sweden in the 40s during the war, where you had Gunnar Hag and Henri Andersen, who almost broke four minutes in the 1940s. Mm. And then, well before it was actually... And, and then it went uh, Ja and, and, and um, Roger Bannister really picked it up. It was in England, but it was also in Hungary. Mm-hmm. And it was Laszlo Tabori. And, uh, oh gosh, um, so during the revolution in 56, they came over to Southern California and they brought interval training to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And that's where the, the people started to pick up on it. And in swimming, it was the same thing. Yeah. Doc Councilman in swimming, I think he was looking at what the track and field people were doing and stuff. And I think, you know, this, this idea of interval training and, and that's when it came over. So my coach, I think, was smart enough to understand that. Yeah. And and he had good success with sprinters. Mike Larrabee won the 400 meters in 64. And um, second place was a 400 meter runner from Trinidad uh, who went to Yale and, um, you know, was, was coached by my coach yeah. at Yale in interval training. And then he had another... A uh, fellow who, in the same Olympics, made the team in the 400 meter hurdles. Okay. Um, I think that no. It's... God, I don't know why I can't remember. But anyway, yeah. yeah, I'll remember towards the end. But so he knew that interval training, and it was, um, uh, and I, I think he tried to extend it with the distance runners, but it wasn't quite right. Sure. But 
the other thing he did, and this is, I think, a, a good way to sort of draw it, you know, sort of back full circle. I think the way I was able to learn how to coach myself was we, um, he, to his credit, was not a coach who put the work out for the day on the bulletin board so that when you walked into the locker room, you could see what the, day, the, co the workout was going to be. Right. We would have interval workouts, and, and, and again, it would be Tuesday, Thursday, or Monday, Wednesday, and, and whatever it was. And you, you would go out to the track in the locker room, and then you would dress up and you'd go out and, on the track in, in particular, but also in cross country, you'd warm up. You'd do your warm up, you know, 10, 15 minutes, you do strides. And then you would go and he would tell you what the workout was for the day. And, and talk a little bit about, you know, what the, why, why he was doing it. Then we didn't have stopwatches. Wendell Motley was the guy from Yale who became sports minister in Trinidad when he went home, Wendell Motley. So he'd give us a watch and he'd been the Olympic track coach in 64. He gave us Longines Olympic timing watches. <laughs> These things were a 30-year tuition yeah. <laughs> to buy. And we would have a big shoelace that we would put through, and then we would wrap the shoelace around our around the wrist and then hold the watch because you couldn't afford to drop, literally couldn't afford to drop this watch. Yeah. yeah. And, and we would go time ourselves. Mm. He wouldn't be sitting there giving splits. We would do our own workouts. Right. And then we would get back... Jay Luck was the other intermediate hurdler, okay. and uh, from Yale, both both made the '64 Olympic team. Mm -hmm. So he was a good coach. Yeah, and whew, glad I could remember that. <laughs> and and you'd run the workout, and at the end of the workout, you'd go back and talk about it. And when I first got there as a freshman, he would do that. And as you were finding out, and he was finding out just what your level of ability was. If you, you were given an interval workout and, and he always gave it in terms of a speed and then a mount jog. It wasn't a timed recovery. Again, it was always. And, and if in the middle of the workout, say it was 12 400s and you were going to run them in 66 or 60, you know, 8, and you got to the point where you realized you weren't going to make it, you could go and you'd say, I'm not on today. And then he'd say, okay, well then break it down to 200s, run the same amount, and run it at this pace. Sure. So you began to get this feeling. Um, but to me, the way, again, I remembered it, is that I only did that, I did it very few times, maybe once or twice. But what, I think the impact it had on me was... I didn't like doing it. So, sure. I I I didn't like having to think about well I can't do this and so in a way I kind of stopped <laughs> doing that. Yeah, sure. But I think what I then did do is that on those days it I think it gave me a much greater sense of 
eventually at what pace you really can start on a day and be able to go through to the end. Yeah. And and so I wouldn't try to force it at the start. And what I developed and and I think this is I think this is good stuff. What I developed and I didn't even know I was doing it was that every one of my repeats I got to where I could start out you know if I were doing 12 400s every one was a little faster than the one before okay and so I would start out at a pace that was reasonable and then I was going I I think over time I could develop a sense of okay where how much can I increase the intensity on this next one? And it was a feel during it. And then it was okay and okay. But I invariably, if I started out at 64 and, and got down to 60, it was like three to five tenths of a second increase, uh, decrease in speed every every repeat. Yeah. And, and so I think over time, and I was timing it mm. to the tenth. And and so I think, again, that was that was a way. And then, once I got out of college and was really doing those workouts hard, I got to the point where I could run that last one. And I and, and I hope this isn't too intense in this day and age. <laughs> but if I did it right, I got done that last one. And if you'd come up to me, put a gun to my head, and said, do one more, I'd say, shoot me. <laughs> okay, so you were going to the, you were I, going 100% effort in those sessions. Yeah. I'd end it, I was done. Yeah. And, and it was all by myself. But the other thing everyone, you know, at this level that we're speaking to knows that it is good to do this in the midst of other people working out too. Even if they're not looking at you Having other people around, yeah, I is, find that important. Is, a, is is important. Yeah, it's interesting. I've never really been able to put into words why that is, but I really agree with oh, that. Oh yeah, if I'm and it's not like you're my... trying to impress them. No, it's just no. It's that you're there, and so each one is is a little bit is a little bit faster. Yeah, and and um, again, I <clears throat> I I could just do that and. But to get back to the Olympic race and, and with the surging, I truly, and, and the going into the races and, and the peaking and then not having a good day, my view on, on any major race, any distance race is at a world-class level, 10 people could win it. Mm. Three are going to have a good day. Mm -hmm. Just be one of those three. And then see what happens. You know, never go into it saying, oh, I can win this. No, uh, uh. No? No, no. Okay. What were you Being thinking? Being in the top three. I was thinking, all I have to do is stay with them for, with, be in the top three for as long as I can, and then I'll find out. Sure. Okay. Then I'll, then I'll find out. And when people would ask me, oh, in, in, a, in a particular race going in, well, who, who do you think your competition's going to be? I'd say, shit, anyone who's run next to me. Yeah. <laughs> Near the end. A little bit of chance, yeah. <laughs> and 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 
you know that that um, and and so I think I think a good way to end it is you know always really just be willing to find out mm-hmm. you know I got out of college and I started to train I started to run better and 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 my goal became okay well let's see where I level off yeah. going to level off somewhere mm-hmm. but I was willing to find out mm. where I was going to level off sure and because but the other part for me was that um, and this is what I would suggest for people to do is find something else that truly matters to you in which you can become interested while you're truly trying to and train and go up and up up the ladder so to speak in in performance because for me I think that was my way of um, knowing that it really was okay to find out because I wasn't sacrificing everything to find out yeah okay I went to law school full time while I was training for the Olympics you you did that between the Olympics is that right no I started out in 1971 right okay Oh, so, right, so March you started the degree before you yeah, and before then you the and then yeah. I finally got through and took the bar in 1975. So it was, it was exactly during that time of training for both right. Olympics, yeah. But for me, what I did was reverse <clears throat> the priority at university, at mm. Yale. Mm. It was stress relief from the academics. Yeah. And then when I graduated, things reversed. But then I always knew. Um, and that, again, just my personality. But um, um, I went to law school, and I passed the bar, and I did that while I was training because um, I, I knew my career would be over, and uh, <laughs> um, I, I just wanted to know that I'd done something else that, yeah, sure. you know, that I could go on. And do that if things didn't work out in the running space, or if if you had a bad day, there was always something else to focus on. Sure. Yeah. And you need the rest. Mm. You need to put your mind somewhere else. Yeah. And then plan to go back. For so sure. That's very well explained. We've yeah. uh, you've shared so much interesting. Uh, information about the training in the it's already up to an hour which is uh, gone by very very quickly but there are a couple other things i really would love your opinion on okay if you have the time um we can be very quick about it but we spoke very briefly before we hit record about the emerge of these vapor flies and the and the new shoe technology and the recent ruling by world athletics um if you could chat for a minute or two about what your feelings and opinions are about that well it's I, I get back to my wife Michelle and swimming. Swimming had to deal with the bodysuits. Yeah, and I I don't see any difference between the vapor ply shoes and and the other and other companies coming up with the same sort of I don't know what's the term for it rebound technology mm. where everyone's willing to acknowledge that um, it's giving an artificial advantage. It's not a natural advantage, mm. and it's not an advantage that's gained through training. And um, and it's funny you you were talking to me uh, before we started to record about well some people are saying you know you have to run in a right way I come back to parallel on drugs when everyone started to go on drugs in the 1960s uh, 1968 Soviet weightlifters um, his name was Alexiev 
In essence, they put the entire Soviet weightlifting heavyweight guys on the drugs. Alexeyev went from fifth to first in the Soviet Union. Everybody on the drugs. Same drugs. Mm -hmm. Fast forward that, people start taking the steroids and distance running or in cycling. They're what they, they are, Alexeyev and other people are what I call leapfroggers. Mm -hmm. They respond better to it. Well, think about it with the, the shoes that now give the rebound. There are going to be people who can take better advantage of that rebound effect because of their particular biomechanics. Correct. Yeah. The way they run. And so this argument of, well, why not let everybody drug? Well, no, because some people respond better. Well, why not just let everybody have the vapor flies? Well, that's my argument. No, because some are going to respond better. It depends on the person. It's going to depend the, the, on the person, which in a way distorts the level playing field even more. Correct. And so I guess that should be uh, because in swimming it was the same thing. Some of the swimmers responded better to the bodysuits as an aside. Some of the swimmers, when they were wearing the bodysuits, would wear two. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm someone trying to put two pairs of vapor flies on. Well, who knows? But, uh, yeah. Who knows? But, but uh, the point is, I truly believe they are going to have to um, deal uh, with the issue. Um, and and I, think, I think you know how I feel about it. Yeah, no, that's a good answer. No, thank you so much for your um, time and joining us on the Sweat Elite podcast. It was great um, to be able to chat in person in your home in Boulder. Um, and I guess just finally, just quickly, why Boulder? Why did you decide to move here as an athlete and you've stayed here past that point? It's a, I mean, I know why, but it'd be good to share well, I, I, with people why that well, is. Well, I've been training at altitude in Taos, but it was a bit too high. 7,000 feet is where the city is. And I think my instincts were, were good. Yeah. Um, about that, but the other part of it, Taos, um, was um, is is a different culture, different environment. Let's put it this way: in Prohibition in the 1920s, Santa Fe, stopped, which is the capital, stopped sending revenue agents to Taos to enforce Prohibition because they never came back. Mm. There was still this kind of frontier uh, mentality there, which also meant that. Um, it, it was a harder place to live if you were a middle-class person trying to earn a living. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't structured that way. You were either a, an artist. It's a true artist colony for uh, people um, in Australia who aren't aware of it. it um, um, and you were either an artist, an art patron, or on welfare. Mm -hmm. And so there was no real middle class. And Boulder also had an indoor track of 5,000 feet. We talked about how I trained intervals all year round. Yeah. So I wanted to be at altitude, but I needed to run intervals all year round. Sure. So that's how I ended up here. And I didn't realize. And at that time, I was not truly aware of the sunshine, the 300 days a year of sunshine that we get. Yeah. And that was the bonus. We all got here and realized, yeah, it, it's, it's a good place. And then finally... I met very good people here. Boulder, even now, um, I think it's a very accepting kind of place, kind of place, if you are someone who truly wants to do the best at what you do. Um, the way I put it is no one subculture, I believe, 
has ever really dominated here, usually in a university town like Boulder that has the state university. The, the university kind of dominates the town. Well, it doesn't here. No. And, and no, and like I said, in the dot-com era, the dot-com people didn't, you know, and, and, and so there's a certain, um, what do I want to say, um, reinforcement mm. or security, you know, that, that people, if you want to do well, you'll, you'll get support here and encouragement. And so I, 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 I think, you know, in a way it was kind of luck. But I decided not to leave. Mm. Awesome. Again, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it, Frank. Sure.